0: Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, "Turn aside, friend, sit down here." And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, "Sit down here." So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, "Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon and Ruth the Moabite. The widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel." May you act worthily in Ephrath, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that we can gather together and and read your Word and, and just be a church together, God. So I pray that you will speak to us. You will open our minds and our hearts to hear from you today. I pray that you will speak through Ryan and that your words will go forth and his words will fall aside. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: So we're wrapping up our series in Ruth today, and and as I was reminded about our big idea today, I was reminded about something that happened to Megan and myself a few weeks ago. We had this crazy opportunity that God gave us to be able to go to Italy for a week, just a gift from the Lord. And and when we went, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be great. I'm going to eat a lot of pasta, just gearing up for the winter, you know, just putting on my winter coat, and and, and we're going to have some fun. We're going to see some old stuff together. And while we were there, this crazy thing happened. I became a lover of Renaissance art. I mean, if Miss Baker, my high school art teacher, could hear this, she would be like, just so pleased. I mean, I just became this lover of art. And the reason is because I saw all of this, like, original art that was 500 years old. I mean, this amazing art. And my favorite piece that I got to see was in the Sistine Chapel. as the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which is at the Vatican, and uh, the story behind it is what amazes me. So the, there's a sculptor, his name is Michelangelo, and, uh, and, and he's been commissioned by Pope Julius to make some sculptures at his tomb uh, so that, you know, that he could kind of be a big deal when he died. People would know that he was a big deal. It's the way that Michelangelo perceived it. And so he kind of took his time on the sculpture and, and didn't really... He, he didn't really enjoy the work because it was, it was not for the, the, best, the best purpose in his mind. And so, well, the Pope didn't really like this. And so he said, okay, Michelangelo, you're a sculptor. I got a job for you. You're going to paint the ceiling of the chapel. That's what you're going to do. Michelangelo had never painted like anything that we would know of before that time. He wasn't a painter. So he goes in and, and, he, and he, he does what, he, what he's commissioned to do. And it takes him four years day in, day out, painting the ceiling of this chapel that's 133 feet by 65 feet wide. This huge, giant fresco. And four years later, what happens is it's unveiled and everyone oohs and awes about how magnificent it is. And the, the beautiful thing about this art that you see is that it came out of the church. It came out of the church. A lot of times when we think about art today, we think about, how, you know, the church and art really don't go together. But some of the best, most enduring art that we have today uh, comes out of that time. And it's this beautiful narrative. And here's what I love about it, is that Michelangelo finished what he started. He didn't, he didn't like the job, but he finished what he started. And, and, and we're finishing up our study and journey through a little book of the Bible called Ruth today. And this story really centers on this woman named Naomi. And and it, and it really talks about God's pursuit of her in the midst of her sin, in the midst of her suffering, and pain, and 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 in this we see this grand finale text today, where everything begins to start coming back together. That's that's fallen apart in her life. If you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Ruth four, so I want you to kind of bookmark that with one with maybe one finger. And on the next, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter one, verse six. This is a passage of Scripture that, that uh, the Apostle Paul writes to a church in Philippi that is struggling to wonder if God is around, if God's going to finish what he started in their life because they're enduring some trials as a church, predominantly Gentile church. And, and Paul writes this to them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, who has received him in faith and repentance, you've trusted in Jesus, that means you're a Christian, this is a promise to you. It's a, this promise that the gospel is constantly working in you, even when you're not on your A game and following Jesus. It's this promise that, that God not only starts the work in you, but He carries the work in you and He finishes the work in you. Now, if you're anything like me, a lot of times you can look back and remember maybe when He started the work, but there are days when you don't see the work at all. You don't see that God is doing anything. And he says the reason that you can be sure of this is that when Jesus returns, he's going to consummate that work. He's going to finish that work when he comes and he, he judges the world and you get to live with him forever in perfect righteousness. This is what he's going to come and do. A lot of times, if you're, if you're anything like me, you think about God's work and his grace in your life kind of like a roller coaster thinks about that winch that kind of clicks and starts up. You, you ever ridden a roller coaster before? I've ridden, I've ridden a few good ones myself. And, uh, and, you know, as the roller coaster goes up, it's like, and you're like, you're like, How, is this thing going to end? Is it going to keep going? I don't know. It just and You get up to the top, and all of a sudden, it's silence right before the free fall, right? Well, the thing about the winch on a roller coaster is that that's the force of energy that brings you up to the peak, and then it lets you go, and then you you finish at a much lower elevation than when you started. That's how we think about God's grace a lot of times, but it doesn't work like that. God keeps meeting us in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our journey toward him, sometimes away from him, if you're, if you're like Naomi, like myself, he keeps meeting us. And so our big idea today, church, is this, and I want you to say it with me, God finishes what he starts, let's say it, God, yeah, I want you to say it again. I want you to say it when you're in your car. I want you to say it when you're at a wedding. I want you to say it when you're at a funeral. I want you to say it in the midst of life's circumstances that you don't know how they're going to turn out. God finishes what he starts. There are times in our lives when it's easier to see than others. But this is what Ruth 4 teaches us today, that God finishes what he starts. So you're in a place today where you... Wonder if God is still working around you or if he's forgotten you or he's forgotten your family or he's forgotten those that you love. The unfinished work in our lives is the work that connects to our pain. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the work that we, that we remember uh, whenever, whenever, whenever we feel pain, whenever we have tears, whenever we mourn and grieve That is connected to the unfinished work of God in our lives. And and when Jesus comes back, the book of Revelation gives us this portrait of what he's going to come and do. There's going to be this marriage supper of the Lamb, and then he's going to finish the work that he started. And what Revelation 21 says is that in, in this new heavens and new earth, this new creation, that all of those who belong to Jesus are going to get to live in forever with Jesus. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more crying, no tears. The former things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's making all things new. That's what he's going to come and do. But right now, church, we live in between the times, don't we? And we can't forget that God finishes what he starts. So let's get into it this morning. Ruth chapter 4. Let's get to verse 1. I'm just going to I'm going to basically tell the story of what happens in the first eight verses here because we don't have a whole lot of time to dig into each verse this morning. The thing that we see in in, in um, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, is this, is that last week we kind of looked at the scandalous, potentially scandalous setup, let me say that, potentially scandalous setup of Naomi trying to set up Ruth and Boaz for Boaz to be the Redeemer. Um, and so... Boaz, in the middle of the night, says, hey, let's pray, let's think about what God would have for our relationship, this is something in his will, and he recalls that there's this Redeemer closer to Ruth than him. Redeemer, uh, it comes from the the Old Testament idea of a leveret marriage, which is uh, this marriage where if if someone was widowed, uh, a relative would come and marry the widow uh, in order to reinstate uh, the property, reinstate the inheritance, reinstate everything that could be lost. And so there's this person that is closer uh, to Ruth in, in the uh, relationships in the family. And so Boaz says, listen, we can't like, we can't short circuit this thing. We've got to do it right. And so he goes and he he, he says, hey, listen, uh, there's, you know, Ruth and Naomi are back into town from Moab. I don't know if you've heard, uh, and and they need a redeemer to redeem what's been lost. Elimelech left them in a bad place. He sold off their inheritance, and now they are starving. They have nothing. They have no one to care for them. No one to provide for them. Uh, we got to do something. You're the next in line to redeem. The guy says, "Okay, I'm interested in this." And then Boaz says, "Oh, by the way, but there's this Moabite widow that you gotta." You've got to take her as well, and, and you've got you've to perpetuate uh, the generations that would come from that family so that the inheritance can go forward. And the guy says, whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't mention anything about a Moabite widow. And so the guy says, I'm out. It could mess up my inheritance. I don't know. Maybe he was married. Maybe he didn't like the fact that she was a Moabite. Maybe a little both. I'm not sure. And so then there's this formal process. You know, Boaz is out by the city gates, which is basically Main Street. And he's out by the city gates, and there's this crowd around. There's elders, there's witnesses, and uh, and Boaz takes off his sandal and he hands it over, and it's it's basically like this handshake, this contract, they're sealing the deal. Boaz is going to become the redeemer. He's going to pay whatever debt that they have to get out of debt, to to get their property back, to get to be able to have Naomi uh, as a mother-in-law and Ruth as his wife. He does whatever it takes. They'd, we don't get the details of what that is, but now they are free and clear to marry one another. And that's where we pick up in verse 9. So let's read it. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and, and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. And I bought, I bought her to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut out from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, listen to this, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and make your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So, so Boaz does things the right way. He's getting ready to get married. All of the bad things are about to become undone in Naomi's life. Not the loss. She still experiences the loss of her husband and son's. But there begins to be some light at the end of the tunnel of her story of redemption. And then the witnesses that are there for basically the wedding ceremony, they say, hey, let me give you this blessing. May may your, your family, may Ruth be like Rachel and Leah. Does that strike anyone else that's read the stories of Rachel and Leah as a little bit odd to pronounce at a wedding? Hey, let me go back to some of the darkest history of our nation, of our people, and let me give you their names as a blessing. If you're unfamiliar, that's okay. I'm going to fill you in a little bit on their story. Out of all the people in the genealogy of Jesus, these people mentioned two foreign women with a complicated history. Uh, They were sisters, okay, and it just so happened that Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson was tricked into marrying not one, but both of the women. I kid you not. So Jacob, here's how it went down. Jacob went from Haran in search of a wife, and he ended up at his uncle Laban's house, and uh, you know, remember, J- Jacob is a bit of a complicated fellow too, isn't he? Remember Jacob? He's the guy that put on the costume style furry arms to trick his dad into giving him the birthright not his brother. I can't make this up. That was Jacob. And then you've got, you've got Leah and Rachel, and so, so here's how it goes down from there. Jacob leaves, he goes, and he's, he's with Laban. He's there at the well one day, um, and he's in a foreign land, he doesn't know anyone, and he he sees this woman that that he kind of hits it off with, and they're talking as they're watering the goats or whatever it is out there, and and he finds out that her dad is Laban, and he's like, oh, this is like a match made in heaven, exactly what I was looking for, and so he he connects with Laban, and Laban's like, hey, you know, uh, I'd love to help you out however I can, you're your family, you know, this is blood, and 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 uh, Laban, I'm sorry, Jacob gives him this response that probably catches Laban off guard a bit. He says, hey. All right, if I can have anything, here's what I'd want, your daughter Rachel. And, and here's what I'd be willing to do. I will work for you for seven years so that I can marry Rachel. That's what I'll do. And so the Bible, you know, puts seven years in one sentence there. And, you know, all of a sudden they're, they're time for a, there's time for a, a wedding and, and there's a veil that's put over the bride's face. Jacob wakes up the next morning after the wedding And he realizes that he has just married her sister Leah. Talk about a bad night, right? I mean, interesting. So then, you know, Jacob's not content with this. He's like, I didn't want to marry Leah. I wanted to marry Rachel. And says, okay, you got to give me seven more years is what Laban says. So anyway, he goes on and he works seven more years and now he has not one but two wives. But there's there's this other issue. You know, Leah was despised. No one really wanted to be with her. She was the unwanted daughter. That's why... That's why Laban set up this whole thing, and and uh, but here's the thing, you know they wanted to have offspring to carry on the family name. That was the promise that was given to Abraham that your descendants would be as numerous as the the granules of sand on the se- seashore and as numerous as the stars in the sky. And and he's <laughs> here's the issue though, he really wants to be with Rachel, but he has Leah as well. Leah can have tons of kids. Rachel has a very difficult time having children. And so here's how the twelve tribes of Israel come about church they come from four different women and one man they come from Leah has most of them Rachel has a couple and then there's a couple concubines in there that we don't have time to get into talking about today but the point I want to make is this may your family may your wife be like Rachel and Leah we look at this story and we think that this is a nightmare we don't talk about this situation at Christmas dinner do we but they pronounce it as a blessing on her life. Now, they, they, they recall this story with its twists and its turns, and they think of the grace of God birthing a nation in the midst of people that were unbelieving and their lives were riddled with sin. So why is this good news for us? Because that's us. We are Rachel. We are Leah. We are Jacob. That is our story. Now, it doesn't stop there. He says, may your house be like the house of, of Perez. So may your family and your house be like the house of Perez. Now Perez uh, was Tamar and Judah's son. Judah was one of Jacob's sons, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is a very another very interesting wish to cast upon this newlywed couple. Um, so, so here's just a, a, a thumbnail sketch of this. uh so Judah was one of Jacob's sons, as I said, and, and Ur was one of Judah's sons who was married to Tamar. Now, Tamar um, was unable to conceive, and at this at this point in, in history, that was considered a curse upon their family. And eventually, uh, Ur died, and uh, and then there's Tamar, and then and then as the levirate marriage law would would uh, would say the same thing with Ruth and Boaz. As it would say, you know, you've got to marry the, the next in line. That He could be your redeemer. And so uh, at this, um, Onan is the next in line. Onan uh, gets married to her, and they are not able to conceive because Onan really doesn't want to have a child with her. And so he, I don't have time to get into it. You can read it. Um, don't have the kids around, though. Uh, and, uh, and he dies. And, and, and well, Judah, uh, he's, 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 he's got two of his boys that are dead now. Both of them married Tamar. He's got a third boy, and he's like, "Hmm, you're not getting him too. And so basically what happens is is he promises his next son to Tamar, never gives him to Tamar, and Tamar is left on her own. And so uh, Tamar's like, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So imagine the story of Naomi and Ruth sending Boaz into the tent. Imagine that going a different way. That's how this goes. You know what happens is is Tamar says I'm gonna I'm gonna dress up as someone uh, who sells themselves for sexual services and I'm gonna meet Judah and I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. Yeah, I told you this is weird, right? And so what happens at this point is uh, they she does that she ends up sleeping with her father-in-law and uh, then gets pregnant and then what happens after this is that. They put her up. She's three months pregnant at this point. And, and, and oh, by the way, she says, you know, uh, for payment, I'll just take a goat. We'll call it a day. I'll just take a goat. But, of course, Judah doesn't have a goat at the time when he's walking down the road. He didn't just have one with him. And so she says, just give me your staff and your signet ring, and then I'll give that back to you. Give that to me as collateral, and I'll give it back to you whenever uh, you give me the goat. Well, three months goes on. Somebody forgot something. And now she's pregnant, and they bring her out in front of the whole town. And and, and, uh, in Deuteronomy, it says that they can either burn her at the stake or stone her for what she's done. So she's being, you know, walked out to to, to this public stoning or or burning or whatever's going to happen here. And uh, she says, oh, by the way, you might want to know something. The the person whose baby this is, uh, this ring belongs to. It was Judah's ring. All of a sudden, Judah is just shamed and humiliated. He says, listen, she's a better woman than I am a man. And so that is the story of Tamar and Judah and their son Perez. Guys, these are stories from Jesus' family tree of all of the people that they could have mentioned. They mentioned these. And, and, I, and I think the people at this wedding look back on history and they see one thing. They don't see how Tamar blew it and Judah blew it and the boys blew it. They don't see, you know, Jacob and Rachel. and Le- They don't see how messed up they are. They see one thing, and you know what it is? God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts in the story of his redemption. And we have no reason to believe that he won't continue doing that uh, until Jesus returns. So my question to you as we kind of get on into this is, What is the unfinished work in your life right now? What is the work in your life that you say, God, are you ever going to show up and finish that? Are you ever going to show up and save my family? Are you ever going to provide for me so I don't have to keep living with other people? Are you ever going to make yourself known in such a way that I don't struggle with this deep, dark depression, Lord? I feel so alone. I feel so isolated. God, are you ever going to make yourself known and finish that work? Are you ever going to finish your work in my heart? I struggle with addiction, and no matter what I do, I can't shake it. Will you finish that work, God? What is the unfinished work that you see in your life? The Israelites, they, they raise up these, these champions of grace. These are, these are people, Rachel and Leah, Perez, Tamar, these are people uh, who had no option but to deeply and humbly trust in the grace of God. Th- there was no way of covering up their sin. I think that's what they have in common. What would it look like for you to lean more heavily on God's grace today? Because that's going to be what finishes the work of God in your life. Not your willpower, not your ability to make it happen. Not your looks, as good as they may be, the beautiful church here, not your ability to make it happen. Jesus is the only one that's going to be able to finish what God started in your life. Second thing is this, God finishes what he starts before and beyond us. So not just in us, but before and beyond us. Uh, When I was in uh, middle school, my family... um, Um, My mom and my stepdad uh, built a house out in the country, and at first it sounded great. It was on 20 acres of land. Uh, You know, I could be like Daniel Boone out in the woods, you know, shooting stuff and having fun, but it was kind of isolating to be out there, and one of the memories that I have about that season of our life was all the commuting that we'd have to do, baseball practice, working, school, it was everything. We were in the car for 30 minutes, Uh, and and (laughs) being in the car in 30 minutes in Kentucky meant you actually went somewhere, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's not the truth in Atlanta. So, um, so what I remember in our drive back and forth from Lawrenceburg out into the country where I lived was there was this there was this there was this old concrete foundation, and it, it looked like it was going to be a massive house. But but at this point, it was kind of a sad story. It was a great home site for for a beautiful house that someone had started. But at this point. There was, there was nothing but like dirt inside of the basement that they had poured. There were actually trees that were growing out of this basement. And so when I, when I drove by it, I always wondered what happened for that house not to be finished. What, what was it that occurred in the circumstances of that family to not be able to finish the house that was started? Did they go through a divorce and, and just decide to call it quits? Did... Did somebody lose their job and maybe they couldn't afford it anymore? Was there some type of a natural disaster? Was it, was it flooded? Did a, did, a, did a tornado come through? What was it that caused the house to be unfinished? And so I thought about that every, every day for the six or seven years that we lived out there. And then one day toward the end of the time that we lived there, I noticed some activity on the property. There was a there was this little digger thing that was, that was taking out the, 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 the trees and the dirt out of the basement, and they were spraying it down and cleaning it. They were getting it ready to be constructed again, because the foundation was good. It was just filled with debris and dirt and trees and things like that. And, and what it reminded me of, as I thought about it this week, was sometimes it, it feels like God's just left you there. And it doesn't matter What leads to making you feel that way? The same thing that happened with that house is the same thing that will happen to each of us. God will finish what he starts in us. He'll finish it. Ruth 4, uh, verses 13 through 22, go on to say this. So so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and, and they conceived a child. Then the women... So the the ladies that were around Naomi, probably church lifelong friends that she hadn't seen in a long time, they're sitting around her and they say this, blessed be the Lord, he's not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer or a refresher of life of your soul. In a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. You know, because the the reality about that is is that it was believed that if you had a son, he could perpetuate the name. There was this kind of federal headship in the family. But she says, it doesn't matter how many sons you have. Like what is alive inside of Ruth is what you've been looking for. This unconditional love she's more than seven sons to you, an innumerable amount of sons. And, and then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now there These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This book could have easily been named Naomi because this book starts out with her. Her barrenness, her daughter-in-law's barrenness in a foreign land, and it ends with new birth. It starts off with her bitterness about all the loss that she experienced, and it ends with her blessing. It starts off with her poverty in Moab, and it leads to her riches and being a part of Boaz's family. It starts off with her despair and ends with her hope. It starts off with her emptiness and ends with her fullness. This is what the gospel does in our lives, church. Jesus takes us from utterly lost individuals and he gives us a family name, he invites us into the family, and he calls us brothers and sisters and children of God. This is what God does. God let Naomi and her family run to Moab for a few years and experience the pain and suffering of sin so that they might come back home to him forever. I don't know if that describes your life. Maybe you've been running for a while. Maybe you, you kind of show up to stuff, but your heart is, is far off. The offer is to come home because God will finish what he started in you. And and, and and the quicker that you come home, typically the less collateral damage that happens in your life, right? Because God gets the final say. He finishes what he starts in our lives. Now, in verse 13, this scene focuses Picture this, on this giddy old Jewish grandma, right? Naomi. She's just so giddy. She's sitting there with this new baby that Ruth has had and then literally given to her. And she's sitting there with her friends that she hadn't seen for 10 years. And and, and it wasn't like they could make small talk like, hey, tell me what you've been doing for the last 10 years. Naomi didn't want to mention it. But all of a sudden, the son is born to their family, born to Naomi, and they sit there in the company of one another, and they name him together, and they share life. And it just so happens, oh, by the way, that that guy is part of Jesus' genealogy, part of his story. There in the middle of it all, God is loving Naomi. It doesn't matter what she got herself into, how far she had ran, or where she was going, but God was loving her in the middle of it. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking, you know, that's, that's how love works, isn't it? We learn to love in the trenches of life. We don't learn to love in the classroom. You don't, love to, you don't learn to love just listening to sermons or simply reading things. You learn to love in the trenches of life. And Ruth, in this story, she just reminds us of Jesus, doesn't she? I mean, she's an outsider just like Jesus, She comes in from a foreign land, and she doesn't just teach an old Jewish grandma how to love. She teaches an entire nation how to love. She shows what God is like in laying down everything she is, everything she has, so that others can feel and know the love of God. I mean, she leaves Moab, which is all she'd ever known. She gleans in the fields as a homeless lady, just to put food on the table. She marries this much older man that she's drawn to because of what it will mean for her family. And then she births a child only to hand it over to her grieving mother-in-law, Naomi, to raise. Now, I'm not sure what the extent of the relationship was like. I mean, families. In Jewish times, we much closer than families are today. So I'm sure they were still in the same house together. But the point is this, she's, she's selfless. She wants to give herself away, and in that, she experiences love. Now, Boaz is kind of the same way. He reminds us of Jesus too, doesn't he? If you've got a Bible, I want you to flip over to, to Matthew chapter 1, and I want to show you maybe a piece of Boaz's story that you haven't seen before. Matthew chapter 1 is this genealogy that starts out the gospel, this family tree, and I just want to read the first six verses for you and help connect some of the dots on maybe why Boaz was the way that he was. He says this in verse 1, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, And, and Judah, the father of Perez, we've looked at him today, and 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 Zerah by Tamar, and Perez by the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of of, of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, listen to this, and Salmon the father of Boaz, and Boaz the father, I'm sorry, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, there we go, and Boaz the father of Obad by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Rahab, you remember her story? Rahab was the prostitute from Jericho, the promised land, the land of Canaan that hid the spies when they were, Israel was, they were wandering in the wilderness and they had this promise of land. This promise that God would make them a nation, but they couldn't make it happen for themselves. And so they sneak in to the city of Jericho, one of the biggest cities of the time. And this this prostitute notices them and she says, hey, come and hide in my house. Let me hide you. Because they're going to kill you if they see you. They're doing a neighborhood sweep and they're going to kill you. And she becomes... Aware of their message and their mission, and she joins forces with them, and they rescue her before the city is destroyed. And this lady is Boaz's mom. Boaz, church, he knew what it was like to be an outsider. He knew what it was like to have a mom that everyone knew and talked about. He knew what it was like to have a stained family story, one that everyone knew. Yet it was through Rahab that Israel took the promised land. It was through Rahab that Boaz was born. And Ruth was redeemed and David was born and selected as king, even though he was the smallest and youngest out of all of the children of Jesse. And then David, after 14 generations later, leads to Jesus being born from this family. Now, here's the question. What could God do with your family? What, What might God want to do with his promise? having root in your family. Because when love lives in us, love lives through us. There's this guy, I want to close with the story. This guy, he was a, he was a, a professor at, at Princeton Seminary. And uh, his name was B.B. Warfield in the late 1800s. And he was a man that knew love. Um, and he, he learned love and he learned how to love through the losses that he experienced it. So after his wedding, he gets married, and literally on their honeymoon, they're, they're, they're getting ready to board a train. This fierce storm comes up, and his wife is struck by lightning. Now, in this moment, everyone is freaking out. Miraculously, his wife lives, but she's an invalid for the rest of her life. Now, B.B. Warfield would then go on to care for his wife for the next 40 years years without any response, any return on that love that he would give. She was incapable of doing that. And he wrote this about love because he learned how to love in the trenches just like Naomi. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption of them. It means forgetfulness of self in others it means entering into every man's hopes and fears and longings and despairs it means not that we should live one life but a thousand lives binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours now what's he saying with that he's saying that that he chose not to turn himself inward whenever he experienced that loss, but he gave himself away. He wanted to multiply the love of God into the lives of others, and that just so happened through how he loved his wife, and he learned to love others through how he loved his wife. wife. And he learned more of Jesus through that experience in his life. So my question to you as we close is this. Where is the invitation to bind yourself to others in love in front of you today? The scripture said that we love because he first loved us. So as we love others, we're expressing the love that we've received from God, if that's true. Because it's Advent, it's it's Christmas. It's this time of year when we celebrate God sending Jesus after 400 years. Years of silence in his redemptive plan. And and whether or not you know it, God is finishing what he started. And he's using you and he's working in you to finish what he starts. No matter where you're from, what you've done, or where you're headed, God wants to finish what he starts in you. Let's pray. Father, we, we we just come to you and we're just... We're amazed by the stories of your word. Lord, it's so quick for us to just take a glance at these and just a breeze by them, Lord. But there is so much grace and redemption in the story of your people. Lord, as we sit in the lives of those that have gone before us, and we sense the grace that you have in their lives, God, would it, would it draw us closer to you? Would it draw us closer to the reality that we need that same grace and that somehow our utter abandonment of ourselves and our own plans and fully relying in your plan and your grace, you use on your mission. You use to make the world more like Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you that this is Jesus' story because we can each find ourselves in it.